Welcome to our International Day of Hope and Healing After Loss, bringing together people from all across the world, and we are so excited about it. We're going to have leaders in the field of grief, loss, and recovery, and people who are looking for hope. It's just going to be a great day, and it's being hosted by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. And my name is Dr. Gloria Horsley, and I am president of the Open to Hope Foundation, and I'm here with my daughter. Dr. Heidi Horsley. Hello, everybody. And Heidi's executive director of the Open to Hope Foundation. Well, Heidi and I are so excited that you're all joined today and that we can host this uh, amazing epic event. We've got uh, thousands of people that have signed up. It's just going to be absolutely amazing. Heidi, why don't you talk a little bit about why we started this? We started the Open to Hope Foundation in 2007 because we wanted to let people know that there is the possibility of having hope again, but we did not want to tell them to have hope. We wanted to tell them to be open to the idea of hope. And then with the pandemic, Heidi, uh, we've, all these conferences have been canceled. All of our grief conferences this summer have been canceled. Everything has been re, you know, rescheduled. And so we thought, you know what? We want to bring together all these amazing people from all these organizations and all these groups to have a virtual conference so that we can get together and you know, pay tribute to those that we've loved and lost and let the world know that there is hope after loss. And that we're all together during this pandemic. It's been an, a, an incredible time. We wanted to kick off the day with someone who not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. He has found hope again after loss. He is a dear friend of ours, Dr. Ken Druck, who is a best-selling author and recipient of the Distinguished Contribution to Psychology Award. He is a regular guest on CNN and PBS. He has been a lifeline for countless individuals and communities in the aftermath of tragedies such as 9-11, Columbine, Sandy Hook, and most recently the coronavirus pandemic. Ken's own daughter, Jenna, died in a bus accident while on a trip in India. And to honor her life, Ken has founded the Jenna Druck Center and helped thousands and thousands of people find hope after loss. Welcome, Ken Druck. Good morning. I can't believe we are thousands of people. We are gathered, as we all know, uh, it's hope that loves company not misery. And we are gathered from everywhere, from all corners of the United States and around the world today for an extraordinary event that I'm honored to be a part of and to be able to kind of get things started. Uh, I'm out on the left coast, by the way. You know, we're all wondering, where is everybody? We don't have the benefit of looking around into each other's eyes in the ways that we're used to and getting all these nonverbal cues about how people are doing or who's there. And I'm just gonna assume that all of us are here for some core reason. Our hearts have drawn us to this moment. And I'm gonna be talking about really what's at the core for all of us, which is how do we go on? Everything in our DNA, everything in our hearts, everything in our minds are asking, how am I supposed to go on from this moment? Now, I don't know what losses you are experiencing or how close to the epicenter of a loss or whether it has been a sudden loss or a loss that you've been dealing with for so many years, but loss has there are certain things about losses and how we go on that are really common. 
each of us has to form our own idea. There's no cookie cutter. So each of us has to take the essence of what we're going to learn across the next few days and build our own plan for how to go on. But I'm going to start us off with some ideas about how I did it, about how I've gone about doing that going on in my own life, but also, and even more importantly, what I've learned from literally countless thousands of people, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters, in the aftermath of 9-11, in the aftermath of Columbine and Sandy Hook, and not only tragedies that people have heard about and that were in the news, but in our communities. And I'm also going to include what we're dealing with right now. This is a time of unprecedented losses. You know, the idea that we are one, that we are so interdependent, that I'm one droplet away and one breath away from contracting a virus from you, that my life is literally in your hands and your life in, is in mine. And I have my trusty mask and I have my six feet of distance and I have all the things that I can do to show you that I value your life. And it's not only the lives of people that randomly I'm passing in the street or people I see in front of my house as I'm sheltering at home, which is where I am right now. It's the lives of the people I love. It's the grandchildren in my life who I can't necessarily hold all the time. Literally, I have had to take a COVID-19 test in order to be in a position to hold my grandchildren for fear of infecting them. They're only nine months old. Many of us out there that are listening have had to do the same thing with somebody you love. And there's a new normal for people being in the hospital and for people even being at the end of their lives where we're having to say goodbye through FaceTime on screens. We can't even be with those we love often for fear of contracting this virus. So everything is turned inside out and upside down. And the new normal for living and for dying and, and the fact that all of us are having to deal with losses, life losses and living losses where nobody's died, but the past that we're so accustomed to has been lost forever or lost temporarily. The relationships that we have, we've had to reconfigure that. And also we've had a chance to spend time with ourselves unprecedented things that we time that that is found in this COVID-19 era to reflect for some of us our whole lives have passed in front of us the people we've lost the grief we are suffering right now so we're a diverse group of people but let's think about what it is that we do how we go on in such a way, how we live out the rest of our days, how we use the time and resources and blessings and gifts that remain in our lives in such a way that honors those who we've lost, whether it's a very recent loss and we're in the rawness 
of grief at this moment, or whether it's a loss, the sorrow of which has been reawakened by things that have gone on recently. So we do it, and the blueprint that I created, not out of my head, but and not out of anything I learned getting my doctorate, but what I learned fighting my way back into life after my daughter Jenna died, after the phone rang in my life to tell me that my life as I knew it was over, that I was standing in the ashes of a beautiful future with a magnificent daughter and of her whole future ahead of her. How, how was I possibly going to rise up out of those ashes? Because plan B didn't look good. It's like, you know what? Get me the casting director. I, where can I file a complaint? Because this isn't right. This sucks. This is terrible. This is wrong. This is not fair. How could this happen? How am I possibly supposed to live out the rest of my life? Get up and what's for dinner and let's put on some nice clothes and let's plan a future when my daughter's life has been lost to her. So these are the things that I did to survive and things that I've learned people did to survive. And it starts with the first honoring. The first honoring is and the first way we honor those we've lost is to survive, is to summon the newfound strength and courage and understanding and perspective, whatever it is that we need, the resilience, to awaken the resilient spirit in us, to call up something within ourselves that we didn't even know we had the ability to do and to survive. Because in the beginning, and for those of us that are at the very beginnings of our grief, it is survival. You are in survival mode. You're on that roller coaster because one day you are going to be fighting, looking for air in the room to breathe. You're going to feel like you're underwater. And the next day, you're going to be feeling a numbness because your system in its infinite wisdom is just shutting down to give you some breathing time, some time to gather your strength, some time to not be assaulted, especially if it's been a traumatic sudden loss, not to be assaulted by images that you didn't welcome, images of how they died or what happened. So your survival, and often people say, you know, it's like the equivalent of being in the ICU, except grief is invisible. There's no feeding tube. People look at you and ask, how are you doing? And we, we think, you don't want to know how I'm doing. I'm fighting for my life. I'm fighting to get to the next breath. I don't know how I'm going to do this. So if you are in the beginnings of grief, you're in survival mode. You're going through this roller coaster. You're fluctuating from surreal, like this couldn't really have happened. Jenna couldn't, this couldn't really have happened to my daughter. Jenna, Jenna couldn't have died. To the all too real, 
which is being emotionally flooded and overwhelmed. It's like, oh my God, oh my God, where it's too much. So our survival means that we need to download the new operating system for surviving the loss of somebody we love, whose life may be even more important to us than our own. And that new operating system has self-care in it. And if you're like me, you're the kind of person who's used to taking care of everybody else, a type E. You may not know how to take care of yourself. It's like, what can I do? Let me stay active. What can I do for everybody else? At a time where if ever you needed to have your own hand on your heart and your own foot off of your throat, because how many of us put our foot on our throat when we're grieving, we're apologizing because we're ashamed that we're, we're, we're so broken inside. Our life is so shattered, we're so confused, we're so disoriented, we're so sad. I had somebody tell me, God, you look pathetic. And you know, they were right. But what was even more pathetic was them thinking that I was pathetic rather than putting their hand on my heart. So if you're the kind of person that has your foot on your throat, criticizing, thinking you should be doing more, or you should be grieving so hard, or you're not doing it right, please take your foot off your throat and put your hand on your heart. Because self-compassion is the most important thing we learn when we've suffered a loss. Kindness patience, gentleness, love, support, encouragement, faith. Like, Ken, you're gonna, you're gonna make it. We're gonna figure this out. We're gonna honor Jenna. The first thing we have to do is survive because we are experiencing a sorrow that is greater than anything we have ever imagined was possible. So your survival kit is so important. It means saying no to people that you need to say no to. It's like, I will get back to you in a couple of months, or maybe we don't need to do anything additional, or thank you very much, but that doesn't feel right. It's learning how to not be a pleaser and accommodate the world. It's learning to take care of ourselves When something isn't right, the time isn't right, doing it isn't right, it's learning to say no. And it's learning to say yes. So when com somebody comes by and says, can I bring dinner to your house? Or can we bring something over? Or is there something I could take care of? Even if we're not accustomed, like, yeah, thanks, we're staunchly self-reliant. We don't want to owe anybody. We don't want to be a burden to somebody. We say yes. We realize that we've taken a hit, a tremendous hit. And if ever we needed support and love, we're going to be surrounded by angels, people who want nothing back, people we didn't know were capable of loving and supporting us, who know how to just be with us, not give us unsolicited advice, not try to control and make decisions for us. And I've got a list of the do's and don'ts of grief support, by the way, which is available on my website. 
and it's got all the list of things not to do and the things that we need to do, a list that I've cultivated over years of working with people and growing to understand what it is that support really looks like. So it means saying yes to good things, yes to people who are capable of really being with you and asking open-ended questions that they listen to the answer rather than people who are rehearsing a fix you response because they believe that there's a way to figure this out and fix it when in reality, there's no fixing this. We live in a world that teaches us that there's a fix for every problem. A diversion for every moment of emptiness and <clears throat> lostness. A pill for every pain. And we know better. We know that sometimes in this life, we are challenged to stand in a moment of lostness, of brokenness, of unknowingness, where we just have to summon the strength to bear it, to ask for support, to take care of ourselves, to have faith that we are gonna find a path forward. And that's what the next couple of days are about. It's you looking through an extraordinary menu of possibilities from people. I'm so proud to be part of a, fac a world-class faculty of teachers and healers and facilitators and visionary thinkers who have been gathered together today by Heidi and Heather and Gloria and Open to Hope. Because this is our time to construct our plan and to put ourselves on a path forward. So the first honoring is our own survival and it's taking care of ourselves better than we ever have. It's moving, even if it means just taking 10 steps and walking to the corner. It's eating, even if it's just a little bit. It's getting support. It's the conversations we have with ourselves to make sure that our foot is not on our throat, that our hand is on our heart with kindness and encouragement, okay? It's also this, come here, Jack. It's also this, because we have our four-legged children on our path, and mine just walked into the room. Jack, do you want to say hello? Come here, come here. So Jack wants to say hello, and it's doing this too. It's having these guys at our side, our loving critters, and our partners, and our families and our friends who are able to su supply the loving support we need and to help us survive, right? Second honoring is critical. The second honoring is to do something good in their name. In their name. You don't have to be a maniac like me. I started the Jenna Druck Center and I felt like I needed to continue to honor my daughter's life and spirit by doing good things in her name. And we had two programs, a leadership program for girls and a Families Helping Families program to honor the fact that families are such an important resource
to other families during this grief journey. And so that's what I did. But you know what? Lighting a candle is doing something good in their name. Showing a kindness to somebody else is doing something good in their name. There is a thousand things you can do to honor them, to do good in their name. There might be a scholarship that you help support of something they loved and cherished, but it's doing something in the world that has their name on it to show your love. And these are all gonna be ways of expressing our love. In my tradition, in my Jewish tradition, there's a, a, a word for it, tikkun olom, and it's actually a tenant of honoring. So let's do that. Let's look at the second honoring, doing something good in their name. The third honoring is cultivating a spiritual relationship with them. The phone's not going to ring. There's not going to be a time to get together. We long for and yearn for their presence. But we can be with them in the way that it's possible. And I call that the spiritual realm. Now, do I know with 100% certainty what the true nature of life and death are? No. I bet my faith, I know what I hope it is. I listen to different speakers who have access and who say that they can look through the veil. We even have one coming up as a speaker later in this conference. But even though I don't know with 100% certainty what the true nature of this, of death is, of this life is, I try to continue to express and to feel the love that never dies in the spiritual realm. They are no longer in this realm, in this three-dimensional realm. But what I call the spiritual realm is what I do with my mom, for example. I lost my mom several years ago. Well, I might be driving in the car later today, and I might pretend or say something that I used to say to my mom. I used to call her up every morning and say, so how's my favorite mom? I still do it. Am I psychotic? Am I delusional? Should we call the thought police in? No, I'm expressing my love. Do I know with 100% certainty that my mom gets that love and gets that message? No. Do I bet my faith that there's a possibility in this vast universe of possibilities that she might? Yes, I do. Do I tell my daughter Jenna that I love her every day? Yes, I do. Do I sometimes feel her touch? Even though I've grown a beard, my COVID-19 beard, and I can feel it on top of my beard, do I feel her touch? Do I hear her saying things to me? Yes, I hear it, not in a physical sense. I hear it in a spiritual sense. So cultivating a spiritual relationship, the second, the third honoring, allows us to express the love because isn't the greatest pain of all the feeling that we have no place to express this love? Where are they? How do I say I love you? How does this relationship continue? Well, mine are gonna continue 
for the rest of my life through the love that I feel and the love that I express. That's the third honoring. The fourth honoring. The fourth honoring has to do with something about them, their essence, a special quality that they possess. It could be their sense of humor. You know, my daughter Jenna had, was so funny. She was so witty and funny. And her sense of humor, her wit was fantastic. For you, it might be the quality of your son, daughter, mother, father, whoever you have lost, that you cherished. It might have been their kindness, their ability to listen, the attentiveness that they were able to show to your need, their playfulness and lightheartedness. They might have been irreverent and nutty and playful and lightened your heart, or it just might have been the joy of their presence. There might not even be a word for it, but it was a part of their essence. So in this way of honoring them, we learn to embody that part of their essence. The fourth honoring is to embody their kindness, their humor, their playfulness, their faith, whatever quality you cherish in them, you try to be more that way while you're growing up in your life. You try to cultivate that quality. People might even come up to you and say, you know, you're, you're acting a lot more like your sister or your brother, or it's, it seems that you've taken on that quality of theirs. Yeah, you have because you cherish it and you wear it and you embody it. The fourth honoring. The fourth honoring is one of the most difficult. You know, I would feel guilty having any form of joy in my life. How could I feel joy? My daughter's life had been lost to her. How could, how, what right do I have to go on? What right do I have to go on and to feel, to live out the rest of my life? To write new chapters, to make new memories in my life. And yet, that is the challenge. That is the way we honor them. The fifth honoring is to write new chapters of our lives. To say to them and to ourselves, I am going to live out the rest of this life with meaning and purpose. I'm gonna make every day count. I'm gonna make the blessings and gifts that I would otherwise take for granted. The good things that I have in my life, I'm gonna make the most of them as an expression of my love for you, as an expression of my love for this life that I've been given. I'm gonna live it out in style and with you in heart. And so we write new chapters of life. And even though we might feel like, how do I, how can I possibly go on? By the way, as I'm giving this talk, I'm looking out on my balcony and three red birds have appeared on my balcony. And they're just coming into the talk. Do we, do you do that too? Where a yellow or a red bird shows up and you go, hmm, is that a sign? 
Am I being visited? Am I getting an I love you? Well, the fifth honoring is to write new chapters of life and to allow a sense of wonder, to allow joy, to allow beauty again, to allow breath, to allow myself to live out this life with all the I love yous for my daughter, for all those that I've lost. The last honoring, the sixth honoring is something that we developed in the aftermath of 9-11 because the average age of the person who died on 9-11 was 38. So they had in many cases and in most cases, parents, living parents, and they had started families of their own. And something was beginning to happen in the rawness of grief, in the rawness of all the emotions that we feel, the anger, the sorrow, the unspeakable choiceless anger, the unspeakable choiceless sorrow, the times where we can't, we don't have the ability to defend ourselves against our own sorrow. It takes us down in the rawness of our grief. Sometimes we say and do things to the people in our families that are hurtful, that we don't really mean in the aftermath of loss, especially traumatic loss. We allow long-held rivalries and resentments to bubble up, to come to the surface in the rawness of grief. So how do we counter that? How do we bring our best selves to a moment where our best selves are needed, where we need to come together as families, not to tear apart as families, not to shatter and disintegrate? How do we bring our best selves, our kindest selves, our most compassionate and thoughtful and sensitive and respectful selves to that rawness in the aftermath of loss? We do it by taking the high road. And the program we started after 9-11 was called Take the High Road. And the ethic was to show that the expression of our love for the person who we had lost would be in the way we treated our family members in everybody who was in the epicenter of that loss, who was also fighting their way back into life. And to show that understanding that thoughtfulness and that compassion. And that's what we did. And that's what we fought to do. And we would catch ourselves in the rawness of grief and we would apologize. We learned that the power of an apology can't be underestimated of looking somebody in the eyes and saying, you know what, I owe you an apology. I'm so sorry. You know, I allowed a feeling of resentment to build up inside of me. I've allowed a feeling of jealousy to build up inside of me or a fear to build up inside of me that I couldn't trust you or that we couldn't figure this out. And so I've created all this drama in my own heart, in my own thoughts, and in our relationship. Or I've withdrawn from you. I've pulled all the way back. And I owe you an apology because that's not what I want. 
We both have taken a hit. We both have suffered a terrible loss. And I want us to find a path that we can be on together. I want us to stay together. I want us to bring out the best in each other. I want to bring out the best in myself. And that's why I'm having this talk with you. And that's why I'm apologizing to you. We can do that. The most powerful experience we can have as human beings is the feeling of being understood. You know, where we look into somebody else's eyes and we see that they, they get it. They've been listening. They really have our well-being at heart. We feel less alone. We feel their presence and their company. We feel their love and support, their understanding. And it gives us a greater ability to go on. And not just to go on, not just to survive, but to make the most of our days. You know, all of us wake up in the aftermath of our loss. We wake up and it's Groundhog Day. We have, we look at two paths. And this, this is something I remember so clearly and distinctly. That I would wake up every morning. Sometimes I would startle awake because I was traumatized. My daughter had died while studying abroad suddenly and violently. And I would wake up and I would look down the path of despair. And I could see at the end of that path, the result of my making despair, sorrow, the organizing principle of my life, of making resentment and anger, the organizing principle of my life. And the result was, I looked down that path and I saw both of my daughters and they were shaking their heads. And my earth daughter, my youngest daughter was saying, dad, we should have buried you with Jenna. We should, because you died that day, but you, there was nothing in you that fought your way back into life. You gave up and I understood that you might, how could any one of us not want to just give up our hearts were so broken. And that's what I see at the end of that path. But then I look down this path and I see the path of hope. At the end of that path, I see both of my daughters saying, Dad, we're so proud of you. You took the time and the care and the support and the love to go on a healing journey to fight your way back into this life, to do your best. And I know some days, of course, some days you just had nothing. The best you could do on some days was to stay in bed. And you did that. But you slowly, one breath at a time, found your way back forward. You started writing new chapters. You survived. You honored both of us. My earth daughter and my angel daughter are both smiling when I look down that path of hope. And they're saying, Daddy, we're so proud of you. We're so grateful to you for finding a way to go on. We love you. Thank you, Dad.
And, you know, here we are one day past Father's Day. Yesterday was an amazing day for many of us. Some of us were just simply in the glory of trying to figure out how we were going to say, Dad, I love you. With COVID from six feet away, with elbows, with what something I call Beto hugs, my father-in-law, before he passed last month, taught us all the Beto hug. And when you look into somebody's eyes and you tell them you love them with all your heart, and since you can't hug them, you go like this. That's what he taught us, and that's what we do. So in Father's Day, maybe that's what you did if your dad's living. And if your dad has passed, you found a way, because you've cultivated a spiritual relationship, you found a way to say, I love you, in that spiritual realm, in the love that never dies. But all of us, and my path was to go to where my daughter and my father are buried next to each other and to be with both of them and to smile and tell both of them how much I love them. And then to come home and to, at six foot distance, be with my daughter, my son-in-law, and my two beautiful nine-month-old grandchildren and to look into the future because what we get to leave in this life is either a legacy of chaos where everything is still undone, we're undone. We haven't somehow come to terms with what this life is and with what we can do with it. And the fact that it is a lease deal or we can leave a legacy of love. I choose to leave a legacy of love. I choose to look over at my grandchildren and to know there are things that I can leave. There are things that I can do in the time that I have that are a pure expression of my love. And that it may not happen in my lifetime. It may be something that my children, grandchildren, and future generations can benefit from. The hope that I carried forward, the light that I carried forward. And I encourage you and all of us, because hope loves company, light loves company too. And I encourage you to find light in all the talks and speakers ahead. I know I'm gonna be tuning in and looking for light. You are so lucky and blessed and so am I to have some of the speakers the teachers, the lovers and healers that you're going to be listening to the next couple of days to teach us, to give us the tools and the inspiration and the courage and the strength that we need to go forward and to leave that legacy of love and to live that legacy of love, to write beautiful new chapters, to make new memories that would leave the person that we lost with a glowing, radiant smile. And that's what I think we're all here to do. I know we have a lot going on. We have, and we don't have, you know, since we're not sitting in an audience, normally if I'm giving a keynote speech, I've got a clock in front of me telling me 
okay, Ken, you've got a couple of more minutes. And usually I often will open, I will open the door to questions that people might want to ask. So I want to give you a chance to make comments, to ask questions, and for us to begin our wind down of this talk. Does that sound right? And Gloria, you're going to tell me what our time frame is and how close we are, right? Okay, right, Ken. Now, I hope I'm on. My tech guy just walked out of the room. So um, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, Perfectly. fabulous. Because I'm glad you opened it to questions, Ken, because we've got a question here from Ruth. Yes. And she says, how can I get my, I love what you're saying, Ken. How can I get my husband to the point where you are? We, we've got to watch, my first book was called The Secrets Men Keep. Ah. I had big hair and I went on Oprah for the first time in 1984. And when, the first thing I said to Oprah was the most dangerous word in the female vocabulary is the word get. <laughs> because we can't get our wife or a husband to do anything. All we can do is be a great example of it. And we can tell them how much we love them and, and invite them to the party to say, you know what, I, re I realize that your style, what's native and natural to you in your grief would be to stay active and to figure out how to hold the feelings at bay. Because isn't that what we learn as men? To feel as a man is to fail. If we're feeling anything but anger, anger is a good male emotion. But if we feel any sadness, we're weak. If we feel anxious, we're weak. If we feel uncertain, we're weak. So we have this, this shame that we have to overcome as guys. That somehow we're going to be lesser of a man. We're going to be demoted on the male scale to a lesser of a man status in our grief because we're not acting strong when the very thing we need is to have permission to cry, to wail, to object if we need to object to what's happened, to ask for love and support, to be held, to be held close, to have permission to be human. You know, broken. Yeah, when you when you say that, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is that at any grief conference or whatever it is, what what would you say, seventy percent women or something like that? They're always trying to get their men there. I mean, you early on were an advocate for men. How do we get their our men there? How do we do it? Well, by invitation, by understanding that it may not be their natural intuitive inclination to do what you're suggesting to come to, to listen to his speaker, to say, I want you to listen to Ken Druck. I think there might be something in there that could be helpful to you. I know how much you're hurting. You know, as men, we're inside criers. Maybe the most important thing we need to understand as guys, because somebody asked me a couple of years ago, they said, Ken, in one sentence, what's the most important thing you could say? And I said that we are both broken and whole. That understanding paradox is the most important thing. <clears throat> that we can be broken. If you look deeply into my eyes, when I talk about Jenna, 
There's a brokenness in me. My heart's still broken. But you'll also see a wholeness in me that has grown out of my grief. Grief takes us, and if we allow that part of our humanity its expression, grief takes us to higher ground. Our trip to the bottom of pain shows us a level of compassion and understanding. It shows us something about our humanity and how we become the better version of ourselves, knowing what's really important in this life, what to prioritize, and how and to I always like to say it's our wounds that make us human. Yeah. Out of our brokenness we comes our wholeness, our greater self, if we allow it. So I would say to that man that please entertain the possibility of my invitation that this could be helpful to you. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and maybe to our relationship together and yeah. showing the love for our child or our spouse, you know, whoever. But just know, whoever but just know also that he feels, ashamed. he has that knee-jerk defensiveness that we as guys get. We feel ashamed or it's like, are you gonna demote me? Are you gonna judge me? We need to create judgment-free zones where we talk to each other and extend invitations or we say you know i don't know how to say this to you i'm not going to get the words right i love you so much and i want i want you to grieve in the way that it's natural to you i want you to have the support because i want to go on i want us both to go on i want our family to go on i want our community to go on and I want this to bring out the best in us. It's not what is it, as a nation, what we're struggling with right now with what's happening with, 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 with racism. People are struggling to pull something out of their grief, out of their outrage and sorrow that will allow us to become the better version of ourselves as individuals, as communities, as a nation, as a society, as a world. That's the challenge. Jenna has been gone longer than she was alive. Jenna died at age 21. That was 24 years ago. But grief occurs, what, what's important to know is part of grief occurs within time. Mm. And people will give you every cliche in the world. Time heals, blah, blah, blah. It's not about that because part of grief occurs outside of time. I can't look at my watch and say, oh, I have to stop. I have, to, I have to get closure because it's time to stop grieving. It's time to stop feeling sad that Jenna has not been a part of my life. When I look at my grandsons and my daughter, my earth daughter, and I feel her, the presence of her sister, what would her sister be doing with these beautiful grandkids? Am I not allowed to feel that sorrow? So please give yourself permission in the rawness of your grief, in the newness of your grief, to be messed up. My first town hall meeting in New York after 9-11, I stood up and I said, raise your hand if you feel more messed up than you ever imagined a human being could feel. You are so splintered inside, so broken. Please raise your hand. And a thousand people that were in that church that day raised their hands. Allow yourself this moment, this season, this time of sorrow, Allow yourself permission and support to find your way back onto a path that your life can go forward on. People are starting to say their children's names in chat. 
they love that you're saying Jenna's name and that, that gives them great comfort. And so they're putting out their kids' names. So yes, you're, you're touching on a lot of things for let's, people today. Let's all on the count of three say our child's name or our son or, or brother and sister. And let's not forget brothers and sisters as we always do. But let's say, or it could be a dad, but on the count of three, let's say their name. Let's, let's make a, a declaration of our love for them by saying their name. One, two, three. Jenna, uh -huh. often we're out biting people's noses off. Or we talk to people in a way we're trying to forge changes to honor our son. And we, but we talk to people in a way that they just look at us like, oh my God, that poor guy. So find a tone of effectiveness to channel your anger into activism, into action that can really make a difference and a change because there are millions of dads out there that need you and your help and you would honor your son by helping them find a path forward. The living loss of addiction, of alcoholism, nobody who hasn't experienced it can understand the pain, the ordeal, the war zone that people live in when they've gone through that. You can be a teacher of that. You can hold people's hands. Not that the result is always gonna be good, but you can help them create to the best of their abilities a good result and bless you for it. So Ken, because Jenna died in a bus accident in India, I wanna read this to you. This person says, I am sitting in India and listening to you and I am sending you lots of love and respect from across the world. I feel your touch, bless you for doing that and saying that and reaching across the oceans. And one day I hope to come to India to my daughter died near the Taj Mahal. And there's an orphanage there right near where she died. And it's my goal to one day come to that orphanage and to be part of some kind of a healing. So thank you so much for doing that and saying what you said. You touched my heart. Your tribe is right here and you keep reaching out for us. I'm here. I'd be honored to talk with you after this program. Gloria's here, Heidi's here, and there are thousands of other people. Find your tribe. We live in a grief illiterate world that we're trying to change. And days like this and programs like this are doing a great deal to make that happen. But find your tribe because there are people who will understand. And I, I would be willing to help you start a support system for people who've lost their loved ones to COVID. And let's talk about that. That's maybe your honoring, but you're gonna be part of creating a support group for people who feel lost or forgotten in the 120,000. Their grief is, being, is not getting the love and attention that they need. Let's do something about it as a way of honoring your beautiful husband. My thoughts and prayers are with you. Creating a ritual, and you'll know when you hit the right one. But creating a ritual, whether it's a special place you go, I have a special place right on the ocean, right down there. I'm looking out at the Pacific Ocean. I have a special place that I go under the cliffs. And it, there's, it's a place where I really feel close to Jenna and where I get to really declare my love for her. Because I look out at the ocean and I realize we only see the surface of the ocean. There's a world underneath there that we don't understand or even know about and we can't see. 
So it allows me to understand that we live in an enormous universe. We're flying through space on a grain of sand. And what do we know? But it allows me to embrace the enormity in which my daughter and her life and her existence and her essence may have gone on. So whatever it is for you that's a ritual, whether it's lighting a candle or something you wear, it might mm -hmm. be a special bracelet, it might be a necklace. You go and you, you figure out what is it? How can I embody my beautiful husband in some ritual? What would that be for me? And allow yourself some time to, for that to come into clarity. Anybody who wants to be in touch with me, just simply go to info, I-N-F-O, at kendruck.com. And you can go to my website, kendruck.com, www.kendruck.com. You can go to my Facebook page, Dr. Kendruck, D-R-K-E-N-D-R-U-C-K. Any one of those places you should be able to, and if you can't get a hold of me that way, get a hold of Open to Hope, because I am an avid supporter of Open to Hope, and Gloria and Heidi and Heather all know how to reach me and how to find me. Uh, I'd be honored, part of my honoring, the way I say I love you, Jenna, is to be available to you and to know in my heart that in some small way I can be a part of your healing and of your journey and of you making the best of the rest of your life. You are a phenomenal person, Ken. You talk the talk, you walk the walk. Thank you so much for starting this day out for us. Thank you for creating this beautiful day. I've learned that it helped me to help others, to know I'm not the only one, put one foot in front of the other, find a life. Adding hope to the darkness, you start on the trip to recovery. Reach deep down inside and say, I am gonna live on. We laugh, we cry, and remember. Hope without action doesn't work. Hope with action can change the world. We always say, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours.